Hello and welcome to citiesabc.com podcast series uh, that at the moment is going to the 60 interviews and growing quite fast. Actually, this week we're passing 2 million views and um, as well continuing to profile some of the global leaders, authors and thought leaders that are shifting and changing our society and coming up with ideas, narratives and um, ways of looking at our society our problems, our business, and all the different things that we have as humanity and as well as citizens. This platform and this podcast series is part of the uh, uh, digital hub, uh, citiesabc.com. That is a platform that we created recently, actually, uh, to look at cities, at uh, citizens, at all the different areas that we have in cities, but as well to create a better positive look at technology, at data, at ideas, at innovation, that I think it's really important, especially bearing in mind the narratives that we have worldwide and as well all the issues we've been having um, recently, especially with the technology being used not for the best things. Uh, so today we have with us um, an author and thought leader that really I'm uh, very looking forward to interview and profile. Uh, so John Williams, not to confuse with the John Williams compositor, but a very powerful author that has uh, a couple of books that have been actually being bestsellers and especially is as a new one coming soon that you're going to be talking but uh, so John Williams, some uh, highlights, uh, is a global innovation expert and founder of the Ideas Lab, which has helped thousands of people start the business they love. Um, and I think that's very important, especially nowadays. He has a career in innovation. He was a senior management consultant at Deloitte, has been special effects software developer for movie makers, including Disney and independent consultant to the BBC. So that's kind of fantastic highlights. He's actually the author of a new book coming soon, um, F work, let's play. I'll let John <laughs> to go more on that detail. How to do what you love and get paid for it. I think it's key. And then the guiding principle is life is fleeting. Why waste it on work uh, that has no meaning for you? I, I think this is kind of very important areas. And I think especially more important than ever, uh, bearing in mind that we have in the different areas. So John as well became a digital media CTO at the European Startup Incubator and at the media technology consultancy team at Deloitte before striking out on his own and consulting independent to major broadcasters around the world. And he's right now a, a famous uh, writer and author that is growing his international outreach, but has been having as well um, some tragic background, especially in his bio, uh, that I'm sure he's going to be talking today. But as well, he's been looking at a lot of the challenges he's been facing as ways to create inspiration and as well to teach and coach people all over the world how to deal with the challenge that we have. One of the things I want to highlight is that his latest innovation, the Pioneer Program, is a blueprint that helps create um, unique business and brands around their skills and knowledge of people and fast track um, the ways to success and whatever the state of the economy. And I think this is very important. And that's one last thing as well that you're going to be talking is as well uh, behind the, the five-day business startup challenge. So, John Williams, welcome to our podcast. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Dennis. I really appreciate that. And thanks for the introduction. So, John, um, there's a lot of things here. And I think especially bearing in mind everything happening in the world, which in one end, there's a lot of positive things. But if you look at the news, it seems like it's the, the end of the world. But I, I would like to go for your background. And I think this is particularly important uh, for you as an author and as well your background, both 
as a technologist, both as an entrepreneur, and as well right now as an author and different areas. So I would like to understand from your background, education, um, and as well family, and a bit of uh, what made you who you are today. I think that's particularly important for our audience as well. Well, I noticed when I was about 11 years old that I was obsessed with science. I think I wanted to know how the world worked. So I, I, I was image of just reading everything I could find. I started with sort of chemistry and biology and physics, and I tore through all of that stuff. And, um, and then realized that I was also interested in how humans work. So I started reading about psychology. I read, I think the first book, uh, a couple of books of Freud when I was about 12 or 13 or something. And then just carried on with that passion of like, how do things work? How do people work? What's really going on here? That's been a fascination for me. And I wasn't, despite that, I wasn't particularly academically brilliant. Uh, so I didn't make it into a big university. Uh, I studied physics um, at college and then IT. And, um, uh, and then I just wanted to do something creative. So I ended up in technology in the creative industries. And my first job was... Um, working for a company that made caption generators and um, uh, I guess it would be caption generators. And then they went on to create automation systems for TV studios. And <clears throat> it was a tiny little company in the Midlands in England um, in a very unfashionable part of, of the UK. And uh, we ended up creating something that changed the way TV stations work all over the world and uh, was very successful in its time. That was back in the 1980s. Um, and, uh, and that was, that was, uh, good fun. It also taught me the way entrepreneurs think because my boss was an entrepreneur. And I remember him coming in one day after lunch and, uh, and, and sort of sticking his head through the door and going, I've had a thought, you know, in TV stations, there's all these bits of equipment everywhere and they don't talk to each other. And they want to have their own individual keyboard and their own user interface, which is usually terrible back in the 1980s. And he says, why don't we just network them all together? And then you could control them from all from one screen and you can have a touch screen and then you emulate the buttons that were on that device because some of them had physical buttons, things that controlled cameras and lighting and mixing desks and you name it. There's a lot of stuff in a TV studio. And, and then you could just call up the app you want and press the button. So this is the mid 1980s, right before 20 years for uh, Apple uh, created the iPhone. And then he turns to me, his, his name is Ian Fletcher. He turned to me and said, John, you start on that. And then just walked out of the room. And unfortunately, so he was a great ideas person, a terrible software manager. Um, because I just went, went like, what? So he was basically expecting me that afternoon to just start coding. That was kind of the way he worked. So that was my first um, uh, software job. And then I eventually moved um, to London to work for a tiny little company called Parallax which made um, 2D and 3D, well, it was mostly 2D special effects, actually, software, <clears throat> for TV and film. And the week I joined, a company called Avid Technology bought the company. And Avid Technology at the time was one of the biggest names in the industry. If you've ever used a desktop video editor, they were the first people to actually edit video on a computer rather than on tape. They kind of popularized the whole thing. They had a thing called... Media Composer, which some, I think is still going. I think uh, Apple kind of uh, destroyed their business in the end and a few other people, but they, had, they were dominant for a while. And um, yeah, and that included 
I was working on um, getting video in and out of the, these very large silicon graphics computers. This makes me sound ancient, but now you can, you know, get real time 4K video in and out of your uh, mobile phone. But back then, just getting even 1K video required a supercomputer. And um, and it, what we did is we signed a big deal with um, uh, with Disney, and part of that deal was that somebody would be on site as an actual software developer for the entire year that they were making this film called Dinosaur. Not one of the most famous animated movies, but so I I went to um, uh, Disney Burbank and we kind of lived there. It was only six weeks, but I, I felt like I was living in LA because we had a flat, uh, we took it in turns to live in and we had a car. So we I took over the car from the previous software developer and every day I commuted to Disney and it was a very cool place to work. Lots of people who were very interesting and, um, uh, you know, surrounded by animators who were all fascinating to hang out with. And um, when I first started there, I remember them saying, as a software developer, if you ever worked in software, the way you test your own software is in a very rudimentary way. So the way as developers we tested our own software was to take um, like a, a test a test transmission like color bars and run it through some algorithm we were working on and then check that the output looked the right color or whatever it was that the special effect was supposed to do. And then we got to Disney and they said, and this was in a flow diagram, the way you processed effects was there was a, what was called a tree, but it was like a giant flow diagram of scenes being added together, positive and processed and um, over, you know, a hundred different elements and, so when I got to Disney, I looked at these flow diagrams they created for this real movie rather than the stupid test things we've been doing back in London. And just, they were terrifying because they just took up the whole screen. And the guy, I remember this guy pointing at me, pointing at the diagram and going like, um, I've got the dinosaur here and, and I've got this there and I've got this over there. Um, and, uh, and he said, can you tell me why the dinosaur's foot is blue? This is a real question he asked me. And I just looked at him and went, I have no idea at all. But I didn't say that. I just thought it. And, and then I said, well, okay, send me that, send me the data and I'll debug it. And for the first week of the job, it was terrifying because I was, I was still relatively young then and uh, didn't have the most confidence in the world. And so to be asked these questions about incredibly complex topics uh, and then to have to try and debug them was huge. But then I discovered after about a week that all I needed to do was say, you know, send me the data and I'll fix it. And when I got the data, right, basically simplified until the point where it came down to one box that was not working. And then you could actually, normally I would just send it to the London office and they would fix the bug that's in there. And then I realized at that point it was incredibly boring. <laughs> so I went from it being really exciting to being very mundane, <laughs> but it was quite enjoyable being there at Disney. So that was um, uh, one of the formative experiences. It was quite interesting to see how they made a movie as well, because they had a, a location wall where they'd gone out to shoot real location footage all over the world. I mean, literally all over the world. And they had pictures of the location crews sort of smiling in front of sunsets in Venezuela or the sea in Bali or some mountains you know, the Himalayas and they would take this footage and also and, and other stuff, uh, plants and all sorts of stuff, greenery. 
and then they would take it back to Burbank. And this is how they would composite like the sky from Venezuela with the sea from Bali with whatever it is and stick a couple of dinosaurs fighting in the middle of it. And it was fascinating to see how Disney operated. So that was, um, that was probably my last, I think that was my last software job. I knew I wanted to break out of just doing software. And I uh, started trying to go freelance um, and I spoke to lots of different people. And I, I think in the process of, trying to get some freelance work, I discovered how to sell myself, which is a very useful skill. So it took me months to work out how to do that because I was clueless. Uh, I was a typical software geek who, I well, certainly when I was younger, I didn't really think about how I came across to people at all. And I hadn't, that's very bad for marketing <laughs> because marketing is all about understanding how you come across to people and understanding things from the other person's point of view. And in the process of trying to win, win freelance work, I learned that and eventually ended up in this company that was um uh it was a it was an incubator their business model was to take this is in the year 2000 so still quite a long time ago taking businesses from america and introduce them to europe and giving them offices and salespeople and integrators and everything else you would need to establish uh your company in europe and I worked for the integrator and also did sort of sales engineering stuff. And, and I ended up leading a, a team there that was, um, that was doing innovative work around online video back at the, the very, very beginning of online video. And that was, it was a really exciting time because it was a dot-com, the tail end of a dot-com boom. And then unfortunately after 9-11, uh, there was the dot-com crash and, um, and the combination of those two things really just you know, destroyed the company because no one was even leaving America to come to Europe. And uh, plus we have a, a dot-com crash on top of that. And, and then um, a member of that company uh, shopped around to try and find us, uh, the core team from the digital media division, uh, which I was the, the CTO of, they, he looked around to find somebody that we could get a big consultancy that we could go into. And we ended up at Deloitte. So I spent a year at Deloitte as, uh, as a senior managing consultant. And uh, we, what I realized after a year is that first of all, I really didn't like, Del I'm not a Deloitte person. You know, for some people it's, it'd be their dream job to work at Deloitte and to be to senior managing consultants, like two steps and partner and to make you, to make partner is a very prestigious thing and you get paid a huge amount of money, but it had no appeal to me whatsoever. It was too conventional, too corporate, too, too much about politics. And so I knew I had to get out. Um, and that was when I decided I really wanted to kind of just work for myself forever. And never, I basically declared I never want a job again for the rest of my life. And I managed to escape which was what it felt like. And um, my plan was to consult independently as a contractor to companies like the BBC and other broadcasters, because that was my specialism. And um, what I did was, and it was a good lesson in how to, how to get something you want, how to sell yourself. Uh, and it's something I write about in my, in my new book. 
and I ran a campaign to get into the BBC. So I thought, I'm just going to focus on the BBC. They're doing the most interesting projects in this area of digital video. They're, uh, they're really nice people. I knew a lot of people at the BBC. It's really prestigious to put on my contract, uh, on my CV, on my resume. And it's always been this sort of childhood dream. I know other people have dreams of being, I don't know, a rock star or something, but my dream is to work at the BBC. So uh, it, was, it was quite exciting to think I would be walking into BBC Television Centre, which was an iconic building back then. And, um, uh, and so I ran a campaign. I basically called everybody I knew in the BBC. I emailed everybody I knew. I asked everybody who'd ever, who was a vendor selling to the BBC. I asked everybody who previously worked for the BBC what projects they had. And I even read Broadcast Magazine and looked at the projects that the BBC were doing around innovation technology and cold called those people. And about a month later, I'd actually left my job. So I had no income coming in and um, I still hadn't really got anywhere. But then about month two, I think it might have been three months actually when I was starting to run out of money. But at that point, um, I actually finally got a call from somebody saying, I'm from, it was from the broadcast center of BBC. And uh, he said, can you come in for an interview tomorrow? And I went in for an interview. I was actually in bed when he called me. And I went in for an interview and he said, uh, great, can you start on Monday? And my job was to put together a request for proposals for a multi-million pound project to uh, digitize uh, an enormous archive of content. And that was kind of a, that was my stepping stone, which is often quite a good way of getting yourself out of full-time employment. So that was a stepping stone towards self-employment. And I, I can talk about that if you'd like. I don't know if I'm, <laughs> if I'm talking for too long about one particular question. No, 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 it's amazing. So I, I would like to steal on your profile. So um, when you, uh, at that, that peak that you left um, after BBC and all this work, when did you decide to start? Because you are a technologist by base and as well with mm -hmm. a fantastic experience in some of the leading companies in the world. And of course, working with for Disney might have been a fantastic experience, which is one of the leading companies as well, creative companies as well. But when did you decide to start becoming an author as well? Because you didn't touch that in your... Yeah, so people do find this a bit weird. Like, how did you go from being an IT consultant to being, or technology strategy consultant, whatever you might call me, to, to being an author and whatever it is you call me now, business coach, I guess, broadly. Um, and uh, for me, it felt quite a natural transition because I've been interested in psychology since I was reading those books on Freud and so on when I was 12 years old. And I was also really passionate about creativity, so I was very into music. I've been playing around making electronic music since I was about 18. Um, I'd be interested in, I, I was interested in humor and comedy. I was uh, into writing. So any kind of creative expression really interested me. And what I, one of the things I did when I quit Deloitte is I signed up for this course. I, I did a few things actually. I signed up for a stand-up comedy course. And for 12 weeks in a basement of a comedy club in Soho in London, I practiced how to become a stand-up comic. And it ended with this live gig uh, of uh, where we all took it in terms to go on stage and all our friends were in the audience. So it was a full comedy gig audience, but of 
fairly, you know, good natured people because they're our friends and partners and whatever else and family sometimes. And, um, and that was a really, I think that was a really key experience. And ironically, I was on one of the last days of the course, I met this chap sitting next to me and I said, where do you work? And he said, Deloitte. And I said, well, where, well, which building? Cause I'm in the strand. And he goes, I'm in the strand. And I go like, well, which section? And he goes, TMT, which is telecoms, media and technology. And, and I went, well, so am I. And we'd never met each other because he'd been on a project at a, a broadcaster in Scotland for the whole time. But we were, we'd both gone from, um, from Deloitte to stand-up comedy. And I went off and started running events. I'll talk about in a moment. And he started running a burlesque comedy club. So kind of risque. It was comedy, performance, some mild nudity and, and all sorts of craziness. So there was quite a transition for both of us. And I think, but it, it's, it's not a bad thing to do sometimes if you want to escape from your work and there's something you just want to do, like, you know, wanted to explore comedy more, um, to just go and do it. And don't, it, not everything has to turn into your career. There was a point when I was doing stand-up comedy gigs, I was doing... Um, uh, I did about a handful of gigs and I went down pretty well. I'm, I'm pleased to say one gig, I was terrible, but I think a few of them, you know, went down really well. And I came close to going through to a competition on my second ever gig. And, um, and then I, I looked at what it took to become a successful stand-up comic. And what you had to do is the people who succeeded, first of all, had just an incredible amount of raw. They did have a lot of raw talent. I think I had maybe some mild, raw talent uh the people who end up on tv generally have a pretty good amount of, of raw talent but they also um they are willing to do a gig every single night for no money in a room above a pub and back then you could smoke in pubs in um in in, in england so they were pretty unpleasant places to be if you're not a smoker and to do they would do two gigs a night and then they would basically, when they ran out of all the clubs in London, and there's a lot of them, they'd get in the car after their first gig in London and drive to another city in the UK in order to perform another gig because they wanted to do so many gigs and they wanted to break through. And those are the people who eventually, after several years, I saw cropping up on, on TV. So I, I thought, do I want to actually do this? I'd already written a couple of articles for newspapers i've written one about uh I'd written one about a kind of medical thing but it was a, it was an interesting exploration of mortality and stuff like that and then there was another one i'd written about uh there was a kind of humorous story for the reader's digest and i've been paid for both of those and i thought i can either struggle to try and do comedy gigs which felt like i was going to be doing the same material every night which really bores me or um, I could concentrate on writing and other things and that could pay off straight away. And I didn't want the comedy badly enough to go through that pain barrier that those other people wear driving at three o'clock in the morning across the country to do, yeah, you know, get back from another gig. And so I think it's completely appropriate for when you're thinking about your career and where you want to go to go like, maybe this could pay off this comedy thing or whatever it is I want to do. But I, I don't want to pay the price because there's a price to everything. And uh, I just didn't want to pay, pay the price for comedy, whether it would have gone somewhere or, or not. I don't know for sure. 
but I get as much enjoyment out of what I do now and in some ways more than I would have done from being a famous comic because a famous comic, like I say, mostly does the same. There was coined by a US author called Barbara Scher and uh, she died sadly earlier this year, but she wrote a number of books about this topic. And uh, I wrote about scanners too in my new book. And a scanner is somebody with lots of ideas, lots of interests, likes starting things, not so good at finishing things, finds it difficult to focus, um, loves learning for the sake of learning. But as soon as you've got the basics of something, you get bored and you want to move on. So scanners always have 10 books on the go. They rarely finish any of them. And um, if it's tamed and if it's used constructively, then you can be very successful. If you think Elon Musk, Richard Branson, Oprah Winfrey, they're billionaires and they're all scanners. The bad version of being a scanner is you just never finish anything and you just dabble and you never go anywhere. So, which is, which is why I've got a guide in my book about how to be a successful scanner. But I wanted to meet other people like me who didn't just want to do one thing for the rest of their lives um, and just be what, an expert in one topic. And so I started, I put a notice on one of Barbara Scher's bulletin boards as it was back then and invited people to meet me at a bar in London and talk about being a scanner. And six people turned up. <clears throat> one of them was a client, one of them was a friend. And then there are a few like randoms off the internet. And um, that was the first ever scanners night. And then over time it became this formal event where we had speakers a bit like Ted talks and, but it, they were themed on how to be creative, how to manage multiple projects, how to be successful when you, you know, you want to, you have very wide variety of interests. And um, because it was so well, because it was what I call super niched in my books, it's, um, it meant that it, it was interesting to people. I mean, it was essentially, it was a room, uh, it was a very nice room below a restaurant. And we had interesting speakers, but there are many, many events like that in London, particularly now. And, but it, because it had this funny little twist about being for scanners and it being called scanners night, it ended up retracting a lot of press. And back then I didn't think to hire a PR person, but without even doing that, we ended up in a couple of national newspapers and a couple of glossy magazines. So, and we had up to 80 people and we charged, you know, we started off free and I ended up charging something for it. And it was a lot of fun to join. It was a good networking thing, a little bit like, you know, running a podcast is for me now. So I run a podcast of my own. And um, uh, it was a lot of fun. We ran it for about five or six years and I felt like it had run its course. And I think the combination of running Scanners Night, doing comedy, doing a couple of freelance articles, getting really interested in how, to help creative people have a good life. Um, I started, I qualified in 2003 as a life coach. And then I also started training as a, I did the, the sort of main, main training pieces that you do as a psychotherapist and humanistic psychotherapy, but without being on a formal training track. So I didn't see clients and, and, and pass exams or whatever. So, uh, but I was fascinated by psychotherapy and that had a big impact on me. And the combination of all these things attracted me a book deal. So for anybody who's thinking like, how do I get a book deal? My advice is usually to attract one and you attract one by, you know, you've written several books, Dennis, but if you hadn't by now, 
somebody probably would have come to you and said, hey, do you want to write a book? So in some ways, that's a better way to do things than to just go and um, try and win one because um, you, it, it just works out a lot better because it means you've got the platform then to promote the book. It means you don't have to, you're not just an average punter going in cold to a publisher. Uh, it means that um, you've got more material to put in your book because you've been living and breathing that topic. So that's what, what ended up as my first book with, uh, it was actually a book originally about scanners and then it became a book about play. And, um, but in the, in all the different meanings of the word play. And so we eventually, I eventually came up with this title screw work, let's play, which is, so that's is, uh, this book, which came out in 2010 and uh, it's about how to do what you love and get paid for it. And it sounds a bit fanciful. It's not really about not working. It's about, it's really screw the nine to five. It's screw conventional work. And it's really about, um, it's really about how to do something you love in a way that the world is happy to pay you for and finding that sweet spot between the two. And it includes lots of stuff about marketing, but also about how to manage your own mindset, uh, how to get inspired, how to find out what you want to do. Because the biggest problem, particularly with people like me with lots of ideas and interests, is trying to work out what you want to do. Never mind, you know, trying to make it happen is relatively simple. It's just a just a bunch of stuff. It's just like, it's a to-do list of call this person, email this person and whatever it is, you know, some of those things might be scary, but it's, it's often simpler than the existential question of what am I here for and what do I really want to do? And the, the new book that's coming out in August, 2020 is a rebooted version of that first book. I did another one in between called screw up, break free which is about how to launch a, a business or money-making idea in 30 days. But the new one is called Fuck Work, Let's Play, with two asterisks in the F word. And we beefed it up because uh, I, I originally toyed with the idea of calling it that title and pulled back a bit because it was a little strong back in 2010. But now it seems appropriate. And it's making a very strong point which is that everything you've been taught about work in conventional careers and by the education system is disabling you. And so, you know, swearing is appropriate. And for those people who really hate boring work and hate the nine to five and hate, you know, instead of Deloitte being your dream job, it's your, it's just kind of, I mean, it's interesting and and it's, it's exciting and challenging, but it's, but it's just a really bad fit and you don't want to be there then that book is for people like that. People who, for whom it's not just about money, because if I just wanted money, I could have tried to climb the, the ladder at Deloitte. It's for people like me who, for whom self-expression is as important as getting paid well. I mean, I like money as much as anybody, but if I'm not enjoying it and not, don't feel like it's, I'm, I don't have freedom and I, the ability to tell my story and to express who I am, and be creative and have fun, then there's no point doing it for me. So I want to touch on that particular, because this is, um, and I think that's what I love about your work, is this kind of, first of all, a sense of looking at the life balance, and as well as strategical way of owning your own personal narrative and your own career. 
And I think this is a big challenge, probably the biggest challenge for the future of work and the present state of humanity, because what we have right now, especially with the exception of COVID-19 and everything that happening around technology, is that we have people using all the technology and everyone is using technology, even the ones that don't say they use it, they end up using some television or some phone or whatever the stuff. But the challenge is that people don't know how to make money out of this data, out of the things they're creating. And secondly, and I think that's what your, your, your books highlight a lot, is that it's very difficult to do what you did. You took a career that is a very successful career in technology, working for some of the leading companies in the world, and you decided to go and reinvent yourself as an author, as a thought leader, as a coach, and as well building all of that. You need to get out of your comfort zone, uh, get on the edge money-wise and, and creating all of this. But at the same time, what I feel even as a teacher and been teaching in business schools is that the universities are not preparing people to have their own autonomy in terms of personal development, in terms of personal brand, and all these areas that you, spoke in, you speak about in your books. And I think this is the critical element for the future of our society, especially as we automate society, work, and a lot of other things. So how do you see this and what would be, of course, people can read your books and that's the idea, but uh, how would be like the metrics and as well about the concept of scanner and these different concepts. I would like to elaborate a bit on that. Well, I make, um, I come up with this term that I use in my, in the new book, that it was, but it was originally introduced in the second one which is um, the worker bot. And I realized that now education's um, changed since I was at school, I would hope, but not that much is the feel I get. When you go to school, you go and you're asked questions and there's, there's often only one right answer. And you put your hand up and you hope that you're right and you're either right or you're wrong. And, uh, you know, you have to kind of... it. Obviously, we need to socialize children. We can't have them running around still screaming at when, they, when they get into, uh, you know, middle age or something. So we have to socialize children. But in the process, we can, we can crush their innate spirit. So somebody said that um, we're actually all natural entrepreneurs when we're four years old. Because when we want something, we start scheming for how to get it. So as long as we've had a healthy upbringing, we haven't already had our spirit crushed, which is always possible in some families. But as long as that hasn't happened, you know, if we want something, you, you see children, they'll, even if it isn't a good idea, but they stick it in their mouth, they'll grab it and they'll stick it in their mouth. And we don't know to interrupt that process. And then as they get older, they get more sophisticated and they start thinking like, okay, how can I bring mum and dad around to get what I want? And so it's a natural part of who kids are and then the problem with school is you're taught like, well, you have to put your hand up even to go to the toilet and you have to kind of ask permission to do this or that. And your, your take on the world, I think this is, you know, hopefully this is a bit better now where schooling does in, encourage you to have your own personal opinions on things that actually are open to interpretation. I would hope that is the case, but it, it's still largely a question of right or wrong. And then you get into employment and what happens is, um, is you either get the job or you don't. You either get the, 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 uh, the promotion or you don't. So it's very digital. It's very one or zero. And entrepreneurship doesn't work anything like that. Nothing like that. And school and employment doesn't prepare you for it at all. And it actually harks. There's another thing about it, which is that it, it harks back to 
you know, when I first got excited, really excited as, as an older person in my 30s about uh, psychotherapy, I read a lot of Carl Rogers, who uh, had this thing called the person-centered approach. He was really a, a pioneer in counseling and psychotherapy in the 1950s and 60s. And, and he was also very interesting because he, he did proper scientific trials on therapy, which is, still hasn't been done very much. And he was a pioneer in, in that as well. What really works for helping people be happier, be more well functional, whatever. And um, he had this uh, idea about an internal locus of control. So where is, it's generally accepted now that a healthy person has an internal locus of reference, with meaning you, you refer to yourself first and foremost for whether you think something is right or wrong, whether you, um, whether you want to do something or not. You're able to check in and go, do I want this job? Do I want this promotion? Do I think I'd enjoy that? Um, do I, you know, even if my parents completely disapprove of my career choice, for instance, I know inside me that I don't want to be a doctor, for instance, but I want to do something else. And that is a very mentally healthy place to be. And school does not help engender that, I don't think, unless it's changed radically in the last few decades. I don't think it's changed enough. Because one of the things you do with kids is you take very young children you, and you make them sit still and you disconnect them from their body. So their body becomes like a brain taxi, as a friend of mine called it the other day, uh, who, who works in embodiment. And, um, and that very much happened to me. And so you, once you're disconnected from your body, you actually don't know how you feel because the fe feelings happen in your body. They're not a thing that happens in your head. And so if you're not connected to your, to your overall organism, which is the phrase, that, uh, the word that Carl Rogers used, it's very difficult for you to steer your way through life. And the job of being an entrepreneur is to, is to bring that locus of reference back into you. So it's like, what do I really want? What do I, how am I going to do it? What do I think is the ethical way to market myself? What do I think is the ethical way to run my business? Referencing all the people outside, it's not that you completely tune out because you're not, a, it's not about being a psychopath. It's like you have to pay attention to what's going on in the world outside and what people are, the feedback you're getting. But it's the ability to say, this is what I want. And then it's also self-agency. So it's about becoming an entrepreneur requires that you, are able to make things to to manifest things in your life to make things happen and that again is not a skill that i see taught in school and so it's like okay i have a problem you know i want to for instance i want to get a book deal i don't know anybody in publishing i don't know uh, a literary agent well you can either at that point go well forget it then there's no point or you can start googling how do i get a book deal you can start thinking like didn't a friend of mine back at school end up an author can I call them and have a coffee with them? And that's how an entrepreneur thinks. And I think being a large scale entrepreneur requires a whole different set of skills of, of people management and finance management. But it, to get started in entrepreneurship, just to say a solo entrepreneur, all you really need is that stuff. You need that, the mindset of being able to decide what you want to do and make things happen in, in the world and to be able to see an obstacle and work your way around it and work your way over it and call in help to do so. And the biggest job I see, you know, everyone thinks that to be an entrepreneur, you need to learn some really clever marketing skills. 
Uh, I don't think that's the case. I think, I mean, it helps. I mean, I've learned a lot about marketing and it is really helpful, but the biggest job, you can Google that stuff. The hardest work is to, it's like turning a tanker around 180 degrees. And it's, it's from that external locus of reference to the internal locus of reference and waiting for other people to give you permission for things to happen. Like, you know, miss, can I go to the toilet or, you know, can I have a pay rise asking your boss to making shit happen? And that is a, a very different way of operating. And that's, and some people are born like that. So, you know, those like Richard Branson apparently came out of the womb like that. I mean, some people obviously seem to have that skill set. I had to learn it. I was very, very passive when I was younger, which is why it's interesting to me. It's very, uh, it's fascinating to consider how you engender that in somebody. Uh, so this is kind of, for me, and I think you made a lot of points that are really critical from the lack of uh, having these skill sets in our education system to, like you said, the sense of understanding entrepreneurship, but as well demystifying a lot of the problems. Like you said, uh, I think even being a teacher myself, although I don't teach much nowadays, is that what I found is that the universities are facing as well a big dilemma is that of course most of them of course want to to answer to these questions and and of course coming up with solutions for these special business schools and so forth but the challenge is that people are framed in a way that is killing their creativity and entrepreneurship and, and this is actually for me probably the biggest challenge and in relationship with the digital transformation um so uh, in in your new book, um, uh, Fuck Work, Let's stay, Play, uh, how, how to do what you love and get paid for, I think you're going to elaborate more what you discussed in the second one. So I want to look at the frame. And I know that uh, people will have access to the book uh, in the near time and probably this interview will be for the future. So they will have access to the book when, uh, at least in the second stage of when the interview is released. So my point is that how can we effectively benchmark this but as well in a way that we can actually get out of this it's like a box that we are all in a box mm. and get out of the box but at the same time coming up with creativity ways to make money because that's the mm. main point and i think your book is precisely do what you love and get paid for uh, because for instance uh, you are right now an author and a successful as well coach and and, uh, and thought leader but you have all this trajectory that made who you are but people are, are challenging. I've, I've very, at the moment, for instance, there's a study that 200 million people plus are getting right now um, in serious problems with COVID-19 and in the case of going to extreme poverty. In the US alone, I think it's around 30 to 50 million people that are getting out of job in the UK as well. So how do you go from the nitty gritty of the theory to the practice? Yeah. And as well, coming up with something that actually can create some security, psychological, because doing what you love it's wonderful, but, and you know that, and me as well, that you have to do a huge amount of work, a huge amount of persistence, and a huge amount of resilience. So I want to go to your mm. book that is precisely F work, let's play out to do you what you love and get paid for it. I really want to, I like this because this title is mm. key. Do what you love and get paid for it. Well, there's a, there's the, the heart of the book is actually a quote that's over 2000 years old and it's, it's from Aristotle. And I, I don't know if I can remember it exactly off top of my head, but it's something like, um, where, where, uh, your great joy and the world's 
needs meet, there lies your vocation. So the, the job is, I'm not a fan of the do what you love and the money will come. There's, that's actually a title of a book from the 70s or something like 80s. Uh, I'm not a fan of that because there's no reason why. You know, I, I like watching The Simpsons, but I could watch Simpsons all day. No one's going to hand me a check for it. You have to find a way to do something you love in a way that meets a need for other people. So it also, it could get very narcissistic, this this. You know, one end of that do what you love conversation can get very narcissistic, I think. And I'm not, I'm not a fan of that. And it's, it's about finding that marriage between the two. Now, there are things you want to do that aren't going to get you paid. Do them as a hobby. Like if you want to do stand-up comedy, then it's really hard to get paid. Uh, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Do it. Do it like in your spare time. Do a gig every week. Do, spend all your weekends doing gigs. But then have something that makes you money for uh for your job and uh, or for your you know um as an entrepreneur and what's exciting about this moment in time and and the reason why you know that the book does have such a strong title is like there is so much opportunity now because of technology as you've been talking about dennis uh, to make money in so many different ways it didn't exist i mean even you know part of the reason i needed to completely rewrite the book is because Technology's moved on. I mean, Instagram didn't exist 10 years ago. Twitter was this new, quite funky thing that, that just happened. And so we hadn't even had the whole, you know, Facebook dominating the world and, and, and the various scandals. Um, and so the, the world's changed an awful lot. And there is, if you are determined, there's always a way of making a living doing something you love. It doesn't mean necessarily, you know, if you love playing guitar, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get paid as a full-time guitarist. But there is a, if you think of it like a Venn diagram, you know, one, one circle is all the things you love and one circle is all the stuff that the world's happy to pay you for. And the intersection between them is where you want to focus. In fact, there's, there's a slightly more complex version of the book called the three Ps of play, profit and practice. But um, some things are much easier to monetize than others. And, uh, you know, for instance, music and art is not impossible, but it's, it's much tougher for reasons that are explained um, in the book. And so you need to think about, okay, how much work am I willing to put in? Like, you know, I ruled out stand-up comedy for partly for that reason. And, um, and, and if I can find something that, that's just as much fun for me, that still get, that gets me paid much better, then I'm going to do that. In fact, personally, that's my choice. And everyone takes their point along that line of, of where you want to be. And technology is just, that's, what, that's why I was so excited when I first wrote the, the first version of the book, because I don't think people really realized what we had in front of us, all the tools we had. I think it's better known now because we all have a friend who's sort of relentlessly marketing themselves on whatever platform of choice, social media platform we have. And it's like, they're probably doing it in quite an irritating way. So we're quite aware that people are doing that. But you can do that, hopefully, in a more there are so many platforms and so many ways for you to get the word out, you know, the way that you have done this with this amazing podcast where in quite a short amount of time, you've got huge listenership. And if you do that in the right way by hitting a need people really have of being really specific, I am a big fan of super niching and saying, I'm going to do this one thing really, really well. And for this kind of person, it is like scanners night, the event I ran, it's going to be a dream come true. And for 90% of the population, they don't care. But that still leaves me a billion people or, you know, half a billion, whatever it might be. 
it's, there's still a lot of people sloshing around who fit my super niche. So I think the, the, that's the key. Think about what is the real need that you can satisfy and avoid people tend to fall in, uh, get into trouble when they fall into one of two camps. One is they don't want to think about the real world and what people are willing to pay for. Uh, they just want to like do what they love and just, you know, there's a kind of narcissism around that. I mean, at the other end of the scale, but it's okay. If you, by the way, if you want to, you can do that. If you want to, you can't complain that it took a long time to break through as a musician because it does. So, you know, just, just know what you're going into. I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from doing anything. At the other end of the scale, there is the, there's no point even trying to find a job I like. All jobs are miserable. I remember my brother saying that to me when I was about 15. It's like, thanks for the motivational spe- speech, David. <laughs> and uh, no, no, I was a bit older than that. I think I was 20 something. And a lot of people think that, like all jobs are miserable or all, all work is miserable. All work is something you don't want to do. I take the piss a little bit out of Tim Ferriss in my book because he wrote this book, The 4-Hour Workweek, became very well known around the same time I wrote my first book, a, bit, a little bit before. And, um, and his premise is kind of like an old school version of, oh, you're obviously not going to like your work, so let's create a business that can get you paid in four hours a week, and then you can do what you really want to do. But Tim doesn't do that. Tim does exactly what he wants to do, and he's really well off, and he loves everything he does. He doesn't do anything he doesn't want to do. So he's living the message of, fuck work, let's play, not the four hour work week. But I mean, I'm not, I actually quite like his book. So I'm, I'm not rubbishing him at all. I think uh, he's, he's a very interesting guy. But the, that's an old model of work, which is like, you're obviously going to hate it. So the dream is to uh, either have a four hour, you know, passive income, which almost completely doesn't exist, or um, I want to win the lottery and sit on the beach and drink cocktails. And, and what I say in the book is like, well, after three months of sitting on the beach, drinking cocktails, what are you going to do then? Because do you not think that's going to get a bit boring? Like assuming you're not 20 years old now and you, you just want to party all the time. What do you actually want to do with your life? Don't you want to do something? You want to, you know, create a project. You want to, you know, build your own house. You want to write a book. You want to change the world in some way. You want to run a campaign. It could be anything. And it's good to start sometimes with that blank canvas. There's an exercise in the book about if you had a year off, like if I handed you a year's salary right now, and if your salary is, is not good, then let's have 50% on top. So now you're comfortable and you've got a blank check for any materials you need. What would you do with it? And it's a good question to ask because the answer to that probably um, is a clue to where you should guide your life as much as possible. And, you know, for me, I'd be doing some, I'd be talking about ideas. I'd be writing, I'd be helping people. Even if I was doing it for free, I'd be meeting people for lunch and talking over their business ideas and getting excited about how to spin the marketing angle or whatever it might be, or how they could make more money by changing the business model or something like that. And that's just fun for me, but that's actually my work. So I'm not saying every moment is bliss. You know, there are days when I think like, oh God, that's a chore. I've got to do some financial thing or something or other. And, um, and there are days when there's too much to do. That's, that's for sure. But, but other than that, the actual core of my work is stuff I want to be doing. And, so I, wanna... and now I don't want to downplay, by the way, 
the fact that there are people in in a real financial mess right now. So I don't want to be too glib about that. That is a horrible place to be. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. And if you're in the West and you've got, you know, you are, you've got a set of skills. The good news is there are ways of you making money right away. I mean, yes, you might want to go apply for a job as soon as possible that maybe that might be the best option for you. But you can also, if there's a way you can just get paid straight away, if you go, look, I'm, I've got great graphic skills. I've got great marketing skills from this corporation job. I've got great management skill, whatever it might be. Maybe somebody can just hire me and at least start paying me something straight away. And that could be the start of a, a career that's much more fulfilling. And I think it's Tim O'Reilly who says, uh, uh, you know, head of O'Reilly Publishing is a really interesting guy. And uh, he said, he doesn't believe this idea that technology will make everyone unemployed because he says, when you solve one problem, he just creates another problem. It's like, now I've got this beautiful laptop, which solves all sorts of problems for me, this computer laptop. Now I need a case for it. Who's making the case for my beautiful Apple laptop. Now I've got my AirPods uh, and I keep losing them. You know, can someone design a case for my Apple AirPods? It's better. But there's always every, you know, as soon as you got an iPhone and it did the, everything you could ever imagine you ever wanted to do, then people say like, well, now you're overwhelmed with the apps. Let's create an app that organizes your apps. There's always a problem, right? There's, there's always a, th- a frustration in life. There's always a way for life to be better. And every one of those things is an opportunity for you to get paid. So I want to touch uh, that specific area. Because I think with COVID-19, we have right now a first, I think it's the first global acceleration of digital transformation. And as well, we have a challenge that, uh, let's say, people like us, this is nothing new because we've been doing this for ages, working remotely, working from any place in the world, wherever you are. And as well, like you said, making a balance between your passion, but as well working on it. Because like you said, one thing is seeing Netflix all day, that might be a passion, but that doesn't make any money. Uh, and I think this is a big challenge, I think, especially for everyone in the world, is that how do you balance your passion as well to the work balance and as well family and everything and all the values that you do? Because people effectively spend hours and hours on television, Netflix and all these things and nothing wrong about it. But if you just do that, of course, your life becomes very miserable. But I think there's as well another additional problem that I think your book partly answers, but I would like to have your opinion is that people right now, especially the ones that have a frustrating job, that they have things they don't like, they are using the COVID-19 as an excuse not to work. Okay. And this is becoming a, a big problem. Actually, I was in a conference last week with actually some leading personalities worldwide when I was speaking in a panel. And the, one of the people, actually one of the most influential people in technology in the world was precisely saying that, okay, how can we actually make the passion to work but as well this balance because this is a big challenge and i think this touches exactly why your title is provocative but as well mm-hmm. quite exciting as well because okay you really need to let look at work and play in a balance okay and as well how to monetize that life balance because of course most of the people the work just to meet the ends and as well they are distracted with all the different things that we have and they don't focus so i think the focus the persistence and the resilience is the critical element that i see especially when it comes to what you discuss in your books and as well all your 
uh, approach towards uh, work balance. And I, I agree with you. I think Tim Ferriss in the four-hour book is mostly a frame. And I think the frame is a bit contradictory with his lifestyle because he, he works a lot, but he works in what he does, both as an investor and other things. It's one that I respect a lot and I hope to have in this podcast in the near future. So, But I think the most important thing is, okay, this balance between this, like you said, play, work, monetize, monetize and make the balance on that. How do you see that, especially someone that achieved that? And of course, you are um, a global personality in that area, but really the layers, because the, the devil is on details. And I think, like you said, if you want to be a musician, successful musician, you imply years and years of professional, and you need to go to YouTube and promote yourself and be all over the internet. And that's, an, that's another thing that I want to touch as well. Uh, and sorry, it's probably a big question, but I want to touch that is the digital lack of digital people. So everyone uses digital 24-7, but even in my team that I have a team almost all younger than me, they're all terrible on social media. And I tell that to everyone. <laughs> but it's, it's the point is that how the hell you can actually be in a world that is digital and not using social media for your own to promote yourself, just to know how to use it. Very few people have more than 50 followers on Twitter, much less on Instagram. And, and, yeah. and this is something that scares me because if you don't nurture these numbers and if you don't know how to use these tools, you have no chance. <laughs> and, and unless yeah. you are very lucky to work for a corporate because you, you just got in the corporate ledger. But even on that, if something works bad, you're going to be fired and you're going to be replaced by something automated. So I, I want to touch this kind of, it's a lot of things, but I, I want to provoke you a bit on that. Well, I think, I'm not sure whether it's about the question or not, but I, I, I agree with your premise that I think we're seeing an acceleration because of COVID. So a whole, this is part of why I think there's going to be a new wave of entrepreneurship because multiple drivers, people who've, some people have had time, they've been furloughed in the UK, they've been paid not to work. And they've, some of the people have used that time and they've had nothing else, have had thinking space. I know plenty of people who've bought courses and worked through courses during that time, if nothing else. And um, I think also a lot of people have been forced to work remotely, to set themselves up, to use Zoom, and, um, and that's, you know, I've traveled all over the world and I normally spend a month or two out of, out of the UK in the winter working from Bali or Thailand or somewhere. I wrote the book, the new book in Thailand uh, on an island called Koh Lanta because it's, uh, England's pretty miserable in the winter and it goes on for about six months. So, um, I, so that's, that was very familiar to me. For a lot of people, that's, that's quite a wild idea. And they'd never worked at home very much and they never worked remotely. And it was quite jarring, which I do appreciate. It was very jarring for them to suddenly be in such a different situation. But now they've got that and they've used Zoom and they've realized, actually, you know, I've been saying it for 10 years, but finally people are going like, all I need is my laptop and my brain and I can work from anywhere. I can Because most of us who are doing what you might call middle-class jobs, it's just the contents of our brain we're selling anyway. It's like there's nothing else. There's, we're not doing it with our hands for the large part. So, um, so I think there will be an acceleration. I think that the, the other, the couple of other factors. Um, one is that people have realised that I don't want to be beholden to a single source of income, which is my boss, because um, having a job is like being self, people think self-employment is risky, but having a job is like being self-employed, but with only one client. And so when they get into uh, trouble you know, that's it, you lose your, your entire source of income. And so I think people have realized that. And I think also there's been a shock factor. It's been quite traumatic to see the world change so shockingly 
um, around COVID. And, you know, there was a period when no one was going outside. It was a very, I found it very disturbing. And, um, and I think that has maybe jostled pe- people a bit because we've had a pretty easy life globally. I'm not saying individually. People have had all sorts of terrible things happen. But, but globally, for the past, well, I don't know, when was the last? I mean, 9-11 was the last really traumatic thing that happened, I think, globally. It, certainly from a Western perspective. If you were in the Middle East, I think you would have a different perspective. But because um, there's been a lot of stuff uh, partly caused by the West over there. But then there's, um, uh, going back, you know, the Second World War was the last really, really shocking thing. Uh, other than that, it's been plain sailing global, in sort of global <laughs> politics for the last 20 years. So it's been very shocking to suddenly, you know, be faced with our own mortality and to hear about people dying of this thing which transmits like a cold. And so I think that's shaken people up. And I think... Uh, the combination of all those things means we're going to have a whole, we won't see the effect of it for a year or two, but a little while later, we're going to see people really doing some very interesting things who started during lockdown. So I think that's part of it. Um, what else? I got lost. So what else do you, were you asking? No, about? I think about the digital, the digital transformation, because like you said, the, like you mentioned, you need PR, you need the, tools and social media, mm. you need to nurture these things in order to build a career like yours. Um, yeah. And in order to come up to the stage that uh, we are and as well, this is not a simple task. It implies, for instance, in my case for this podcast, there's a, a small team behind it that I had to mm. invest. There's a lot of work to get the views. This doesn't happen by accident. Uh, and even on this, Facebook and YouTube keep on screwing up the YouTube and changing the algorithms and they don't care less about how how much users you have, they will just screw you up if they're not getting what they have. Actually, we have uh, this week uh, in, in, in end of July, precisely the, the, the US uh, grilling on, on the big players of social media and technology. But I think the challenge is really to nurture these tools and to learn how to use these tools is critical to make money. And, and mm. I want to touch that yeah. because it's the nitty gritty. And I think that's what you highlight in your books and especially mm. uh, in the previous one, the new one, I know that is going to come, but I, I want to understand this level of the tools, how yeah. to use the tools and how to use the process, the process to get this. Well, people describe me as very well connected, uh, which I'm more surprised when people say that, but it's, it happened organically. I don't do any kind of, uh, cheesy networking. I don't, I don't think, I mean, there's a certain level of awareness. I mean, I was sitting next to one of the editors of a Sunday Times style magazine at dinner once and realized that she was interested in the book I was writing, which is my first book. And I thought, okay, I should probably not screw up this conversation. And it turned, you know, she ended up listing it as one of the six buzz books of the summer. And so it's not like I'm completely naive about who's important to talk to, but I don't, I don't, I don't really plot and think I should network or I don't even think I should have lots of followers. I, I, there's some awareness of that. But what I do is I like sharing my journey on social media. So this is a good strategy. Sharing your journey on social media and sharing who you are and being reasonably authentic about it and, um, and, and being some version of yourself, which a lot of people are very scared to be. Um, I think really pays off. And I've ended up, I am very, I know lots of authors. I know lots of people. I know quite a few journalists and I know all sorts of interesting people. And it's a very useful thing when suddenly you start a podcast or something like that and you want to interview them. 
And so I think my advice, first of all, is do what you want to do, which is like, if you're really interested in the subject, say you um, say you're in a job right now, or and maybe you worry about losing it, or maybe you just want to get out and you want to really establish yourself possibly as a contractor or a consultant or start a business in some area, just start talking to those people who you find interesting. So the people I follow on Twitter are people I find absolutely fascinating. I've got this list now, which is most, mostly about people who share interesting things about the coronavirus, which are, which are evidence-based, but, but reasonably optimistic. So I've got a kind of filtered list because I'm, I'm capable of being very uh, pessimistic, particularly about health stuff. And so I deliberately filter what I read. And I, I read a lot of um, uh, Scott Adams and Paul Graham, uh, Naval Ravikant, and uh, a couple of other people. Uh, Elon Musk is quite entertaining, although a bit nutty on Twitter. And so those people normally have a kind of optimistic view of life generally, but they also believe in reality because I have no time for silly conspiracy theories and, and just wildly wishful thinking. And, and in fact, I run a Facebook group called Humanity versus Corona, um, which is themed on that. Um, and so if people like science, but also want the positive version of the current science and not hear the doom stories, that's a good place to go join. And I think you can just kind of do what you want to do and pursue your interests and you will build a following around that. So... I've not really tried. There's only a hundred people in humanity versus Corona. And I don't really care because it serves my purpose, which is there's one place I can share all the good news from science, the progress on vaccines, on treatments, even things, you know, evidence backed um, natural health stuff that's really been proven to work. And, uh, and anyone who wants to join that can join. And, and, And I have that similar philosophy for everything. So I follow all these people on Twitter like Paul Graham and stuff and, and James Altucher, who's a, who's an author and on, entrepreneur. And, and they, you know, what James Altucher followed me back the other day and it was, that was, I still, I'm used Twitter for a while. So it was like, Oh yeah, I've forgotten. That's the exciting thing about Twitter. People you really love and respect actually follow you back. If you, if you look like you, you might be interesting too. And then I asked him uh, uh, some advice about my book cover and he actually gave me some really good advice uh, about the book cover for the new book. And, and that's something that's so exciting on social media and all of us can do this and you can do it without being some sleazy networker of like, what am I going to get out of this? It's like, I like James Altucher. I like Paul Graham. I like whoever it might be. Why wouldn't I want to have them on my podcast or follow them on Twitter or comment on something funny they've written or something interesting they've written. And that's actually the best kind of networking. So that's what I, that's my suggestion. And I think, you can choose your platform of choice because I resonate with Facebook most, mostly. I know there aren't any young people on Facebook, but Facebook just kind of works for me. I think it's the slickest platform. Um, Everything about it works. And uh, I gave up on Twitter for a long time. I went back to Twitter recently because it's the best place for real time news around the coronavirus and stuff and, um, uh, and scientists and stuff like that. And I also thought I did actually make a point of following some journalists and seeing if I could uh, make connections to journalists. That was a deliberate bit of networking around the book, but mostly I, I'd just been using it for coronavirus stuff. Um, 
And so you, you need to find out what it is for you. Like I don't particularly chime with Instagram, so I don't use it very much, but for you, you might do. And whatever your platform is, use it and just connect with people and try and be yourself. And there's a very, there's um, some advice about social media stuff in the book, which includes, I think I reference um, Gary Vaynerchuk, who people might've heard of, who's a big social media guru. And he says something really important. He doesn't explain it terribly well, unfortunately, he sort of comes up with these catchphrases. And then he's not that great at explaining himself sometimes, but he had this thing called document don't create. And what he means by that is you don't, the old school version of, of, of self-marketing was you write these beautiful thought pieces on, on your blog or on medium or whatever it might be. Um, or you have to say something really profound or, you know, significant or new, but in actual fact, people are as interested in you as a person as anything else. So, uh, Paul Graham, who I mentioned, he's the found, co-founder of Y Combinator, which is the most respected startup incubator in the world. I've quoted him in my books. And he's brilliant at explaining how value creation works, the broader topic of how you create a business. And he, the other day, he told a funny little story with his eight-year-old. And I tweeted him and said, oh, my God, it sounds like you've turned into Homer Simpson. And he actually kind of laughed at that. And those little interactions are as important as anything else in social media. So social media is just people being people, but with electricity is kind of how I put it once. It's just you doing you online if you do it right. And if you do, so it's really about who you are and being able to be a bit more open and share your journey. So you might, for instance, if you're starting a business, share your journey to start a business and say like, I'm starting a business about this, not even completely formed exactly how this is going to work. Um, if you want to follow along with me, you can do and look over my shoulder as I make tons of mistakes. And as soon as I work things out that work, I'm going to share it with you. That's a very compelling story for people to tune into. It requires a certain amount of vulnerability. And this is, and again, we are taught never to be vulnerable in school because if you are, it doesn't go well generally if you, if you, you know, admit your weaknesses in front of the class. So um, it's, it's an alien thing for us to do from the education system and from the office as well. It's not good to show your vulnerabilities in the office and say, I'm really anxious about my job right now. You know, that's quite a, people don't normally say that in the middle of the office, but it's actually entirely appropriate to say on social media, if you want to be authentic and say, I've got a big meeting today. I've got to admit, I'm really nervous. I'm meeting a hero of mine. I want to interview them for this, blog or his podcast or whatever it is um i'm going to them or maybe they promised to give me a meet me for coffee and give me advice about how to get my business off the ground but you know i'm really nervous about this meeting people love that because everyone's been there so i think everybody can do that and i think that's a very authentic way of being i think gary vaynerchuk you know that's kind of what he's shooting at it document don't create you can also curate content that you're learning so what I'm doing with humanity versus Corona is nothing to do with my business in this case, you know, none of my business has to do with, you know, healthcare or anything, but what I'm doing is I'm just curating a certain kind of content. And so if you follow me on, if you've joined that group in Facebook, what you'll get is a certain curated feed about the coronavirus, which is basically going to make you feel good. <laughs> that's, that's the aim of it. It's like, this is the latest breakthrough. 
And I do have quite an optimistic view about coronavirus. I think we will have a vaccine. There's a fair chance we'll have a vaccine by the end of the year. And I think we, we have learned so much about virology in this process that it's really exciting. And um, I read at the beginning of this whole fiasco, uh, somebody said um, virology is where bacteriology was 100 years ago. So this is before we had any antibiotics and where if you had an operation, there was a fair chance you were going to die because you would get an infection and there's nothing they could do. Uh, maybe it was a bit longer. I don't know when antibiotics were invented. But it was about 100 years, maybe a bit longer. And, and virology was in the same place. It's like, oh, you got a virus. Let's hope you live. It was kind of all we had to give people. We maybe had a, you know, we could support them and stuff. And there are a couple of antivirals, and, but very, very limited. And now the whole world has been working on this one thing for six months, and if not more. And, and we have brought forward our thinking on virology wonderfully far. So that's kind of my positive view on the coronavirus. And, uh, and I think well, we, we will, um, for various reasons, we, we probably won't have another second peak that's as bad as the first peak. America is a rule of its... America, I don't know what America's doing, but it, it ain't very smart. And I don't know what's going to happen in America. But I think in the rest of the world, we will avoid having a second wave that is larger or even as large as the first, simply because we've learned so much stuff. And uh, so it's not going to be like 1918, you know, the Spanish flu. So it's that I share that kind of stuff. And it's, that's another passion of mine. That's the problem of being a scanner, right? I, you can never really focus, but I, I'm not surprised if some of the people who are in humanity versus Corona end up reading about that and then see I'm doing, I run this free thing called the, the you mentioned the five day business startup challenge. And then uh, they join that. And then they end up paying for one of my courses, uh, you know, for the pioneer program or something. So I'm not deliberately trying to, do that, but I wouldn't be surprised if that actually happened anyway. So can you tell us precisely about uh, the, um, the five-day business startup challenge? And, and as well, the Ideas Lab, which is two separate projects that I would like to hear from both of them. Yeah, so the Ideas Lab is, is my company, and that's what was founded. Uh, really got going in uh, probably at the beginning, it was 2005, so it's about 15 years ago. Um, and it's kind of accelerating over the past year or two. And this year has been really, really good. Uh, it's, it's not a big company. It's basically me and a supporting team, a little bit like you're talking about, Dennis, with the, the podcast, uh, you know, an assistant and a community manager and um, a PR person and uh, a couple of other people, uh, finance people and planning people and so on. And what we do is we help people create a unique business and brand around themselves. So often people who are creating initially a very small business that's, that's really just them or them and some, uh, you know, people helping around them, not necessarily a big business. And uh, those, some of those small businesses, as I show in my, in Fuck Work, Let's Play, some of those small businesses that were just like that, who embodied the principles I've talked about, and I interviewed them 10 years ago, they're now running serious international businesses that have got big brands, you know, a dozen or more staff and uh, are global players in their area. 
And uh, there's some just cracking stories in the book that are really entertaining. Some really quirky businesses that went on to be very powerful forces in their field. And so the Ideas Lab is about helping people go from an idea. We actually have a course. If you don't have an idea, we have a course called Idea Breakthrough to help you find an idea. But otherwise, the primary thing we do is to help people go from an idea to making money out of it and, uh, and then starting to scale it up. And the primary thing, the pay program is called the Pioneer Program. <clears throat> and we've had, uh, actually, I don't know how many people have now because I've stopped, I haven't counted recently. But it's, it's somewhere between 50 and 100 people, I think, have done the, the Pioneer Program now. And I've, I've had many other courses that were earlier forms of that over the years. So we've had thousands of people go through my pay programs in the past and, um, and start something that they are really excited about. We get a lot of freelancers and consultants who want to create a unique brand around what they do. We also get people who just have an idea. They want to create an online business, maybe, maybe a course or something. Um, and sometimes they have an idea for, it's usually based around their ideas and expertise. So that's our, that's our sweet spot. Though I do deal with people who have other ideas like startups and apps and stuff because I've got a history there. And um, one of the other things we do is the five-day business startup challenge, which is free. We've got one on the 10th of August, uh, but we run them about um, about every six weeks or so. So uh, anyone who's listened to this can always go and find it at theideaslab.org and look for the five-day challenge. And uh, the idea of that is it's really good fun. We had 800 people on the previous one. We've had up to 1,000, I think 2,500 people in total have, have taken it. We've run it. We started it this year and we've run it, I think, three or four times now. And... Uh, the 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 concept of it is that you're going to we're going to help you find an idea and actually start to put it out to the world and test it out in five days and you get a little lesson every morning on video of me going through a principle uh, one of the key ones is you know what is the need you're fulfilling we have a particular exercise around that that's incredibly revealing that really will show whether your business has legs or not or whether it's just something fanciful and and then we go on to like how do you start to market it or market yourself in order to get traction in that way we were talking about earlier uh, and then how do you start to spread the word and possibly even get your first sale we had some people actually you know make thousands of pounds or euros in the course of the five-day challenge before so if it, yeah people can find out about the five-day business startup challenge at um uh, at the ideas lab website and it's really good fun. And it, for me, you know, I try to, I think it's a good principle. Effectively, it's a marketing vehicle because a certain proportion of those people who do the free course then join the Pioneer program and pay to do that. But for me, there's lots of different ways, lots of different marketing models we could use. But this one suits my personality. I used to have parties, much to my mother's horror, when I was uh, like 18. And I would just invite everybody because I, I always knew not because I was amazingly popular, but I was friends of lots of different cliques because I had this sort of weird multifaceted personality. And then I would invite them and then all the cliques would turn up uh, at Sixth Form College when we were like between 16 and 18. I ended up with like 80 people in our house. It's absolutely horrified my mom. And, and to me, um, the principle of a good party is just get interesting people together and then get out of the way almost. It's like you don't really need to do much 
Um, it's like a nuclear reaction. It's kind of just take the control rods out and things will happen. So uh, you can tell I studied physics. And, and then um, the, the five-day challenge is a little bit like that, the five-day business startup challenge. We just get people in there and we have some lessons. But it's fun because there's a buzz about it. It's, it's really entertaining and people really enjoy it. We get amazing feedback about it. And so it's lovely to be able to do something that is fun to deliver, completely free of charge, has a big impact for people, and, you know, converts for people, uh, converts for us as a, as a company and, and gets us, uh, you know, uh, buyers of uh, the things that are paid. So it's a good principle for anyone, like what is the marketing medium that suits you naturally? Completely. So, so it's been a one hour and a half, so I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up. So John, um, um, there's a lot of things here. There's a lot of summaries and I think your book speak for itself. Um, as a final um, notes, what would be the best ways? You mentioned your Facebook that is more restricted, but you have a lot of places where people can find about you. So what would be the channels when someone that wants to get into the, the ideas lab more, that's the website, but as well in your network events, where they can find you? What, uh, what are the places where they actually can connect with you besides, of course, what is in the, in the internet? Yeah, so if you go to theideaslab.org, that's my website for the company. You can find the five-day business startup challenge on there and join that for free. You can also join the email list to hear about what, we, what we're doing every week. Um, aside from that, I'm quite active on Facebook and my personal profile. So uh, if you can find the right John Williams... <laughs> <laughs> then, <Yeah. laughs> then, then uh, it's not necessarily easy. Then you can um, you can find me, and uh, I'm also on I'm on Instagram as John W London. I'm on Twitter as John S W, and um, I think those are probably the primary things. The book uh, Fuck Work Let's Play will be published by Pearson. Currently, it's looking like 24th of August on Kindle um, in uh, 2020. So go to Amazon to find that. And then we're looking at releasing the paperback at the end of the year. And the reason why we're waiting is because we have a potential deal to make a book of the month in one of the most important retailers in the UK. But they will only make a book of the month when it's new. And we don't want to make it book of the month until people are going back into bookshops. So COVID has kind of messed up, you know, bits of my life as it has with everybody else. Um, and uh, we should have been having the book launch, you know, next week. Um, and as it is about what well, the paperback will come out later in the year, but you can get the Kindle on the 24th of August. And, uh, and otherwise you can find all those links anyway at the ideas And, and you have it as well, the, pre- uh, the podcast as well no? of course yeah and the podcast which is called the ideas lab podcast and we have um some fascinating authors like dan pink near ale who wrote indistractable dan pink wrote a book recently about uh, the timing of everyday life called when and why you don't need to get up early in the morning which is good news to me so we have all sorts of fascinating people and people who are experts in changing habit we have entrepreneurial stories um how to market yourself specifics of um marketing bots and email marketing and all sorts of stuff so yeah check that out if you're a, a podcast fan 
No, thank you so much. We'll put all these links in the interviews, both on YouTube and as well on the, the other channels where we're going to be distributing the interview. So thank you so much, John. It's been mm -hmm. a privilege and as well, a lot of things here to think about, but I think, like you said, this is, is really about the focus and as well the things that you like to do. So have a great day and um, thank you for these inspirational ideas. Well, thanks very much, Tony. I really appreciate it.